Section 5 of the Letters of Madame de Sévigné to her daughter and friends. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Letter 14. The Rocks, Sunday, June the 28th, 1671. You have amply made up to me my late losses. I have received two letters from you which have filled me with transports of joy. The pleasure I take in reading them is beyond all imagination. If I have in any way contributed to the improvement of your style, I did it in the thought I was labouring for the pleasure of others, not for my own. But Providence was seen fit to separate us so often, and to place us at such immense distances from each other has repaid me a little for the privations in the charms of your correspondence, and still more in the satisfaction you express in your situation and the beauty of your castle. You represent it to me with an air of grandeur and magnificence that enchants me. I once saw a similar account of it by the first Madame de Grignon, but I little thought at that time that all these beauties were one day to be at your command. I am very much obliged to you for having given me so particular an account of it. If I could be tired in reading your letters, it would not only betray a very bad taste in me, but would likewise show that I could have very little love or friendship for you. Divest yourself of the dislike you have taken to circumstantial details. I have often told you, and you ought yourself to feel the truth of this remark, that they are as dear to us from those we love, as they are tedious and disagreeable from others. If they are displeasing to us, it is only from the indifference we feel for those who write them. Admitting this observation to be true, I leave you to judge what pleasure yours afford me. It is a fine thing, truly, to play the great lady as you do at present. I perfectly comprehend Monsieur de Grignon's feelings in seeing you so much admire his castle. Had you appeared insensible or even indifferent on the occasion, it would have given him a chagrin that I can conceive better perhaps than any other, and I share in the pleasure he has in seeing you pleased. There are some hearts which sympathise for each other so truly that they judge by themselves what others feel. You do not mention Vardes often enough to me, nor for Corbinelli. Footnote. The Marquis de Vardes was banished to Provence in 1665 for having been concerned in some court intrigue and remained in exile till the year 1682. He was a man of amiable manners, back to main text. Was it not very agreeable to you to be able to speak their language? How goes on Vard's love for the fair tea? Tell me whether he is much hurt by the infinite length of his banishment, or whether his philosophy and a little dash of misanthropy can support his heart against these vicissitudes of love and fortune. The books you read are well chosen, 
Petrarch must certainly give you a good deal of pleasure, especially with the notes you have. Those of Mademoiselle de Scudery on some of his sonnets rendered them very agreeable. As for Tacitus, you know how much I was charmed with it when we read it together here, and how often I used to interrupt you to make you observe the periods where I thought the harmony particularly striking. But if you stop halfway, I shall scold you. It will be doing great injustice to the dignity of the subject. And I shall say to you, as a certain prelate did to the Queen Mother, this is history. You know what stories are already. A reductance in this respect is only pardonable in romances, which I know you do not like. We read Tasso with pleasure, and I am a pretty good proficient in the language from the excellent masters I've had. My son makes La Mousse read Cleopatra. Footnote, a famous romance of La Copcanades, back to main text, and I listen to him, whether I will or not, and am amused. My son is going to Lorraine. We shall be very dull in his absence. You know how it vexes me to see the breaking up of an agreeable party, and how transported I am when I see a train of carriages driving off that have wearied me to death for a whole day. Upon which we made this just observation that bad company is more desirable than good. I recollect all the old things we used to say when you were here, and all you said yourself and all you did. Your idea never leaves me. And then again, on a sudden, I think where you are. My imagination represents to me an immense space and a great distance. On a sudden, your castle bounds the prospect, and I am displeased at the walls that enclose your mall. Ours is surprisingly beautiful, and the young nursery is delightful. I take pleasure in rearing their little heads to the clouds, and frequently, without considering consequences or my own interest, cut down large trees because their shade incommodes my young ones. My son views all these proceedings, but I do not allow him to interfere. Pilois continues to be a very great favourite with me, and I prefer his conversation to that of many who have the title of Chevalier in the Parliament of Rennes. I am grown rather more negligent than you, for the other day I let a coachful of the Fournel family go home through a tremendous rain for want of pressing them with a good grace to stay. But I could not get the compliment to pass my lips. It was not the two young women, but the mother and an old woman from Rennes and the two sons. Mademoiselle Duplessis is exactly as you represent her, only, if possible, more impertinent. What she says and does every day to keep me from being jealous is perfectly original, and I'm quite provoked sometimes that I have nobody to laugh at it with me. Her sister-in-law is very pretty, without being ridiculous, and speaks Gascon in the midst of Brittany. 
I think you were very happy in having Madame de Simeon with you. Footnote. Madeleine Haidouchatelet, wife to Charles-Louis, Marquis de Simeon. She was afterward mother-in-law to Paulina de Grignon, back to main text. She has a fund of knowledge that will relieve you from all kinds of restraint. This is a great deal. You have, too, a very agreeable companion in her. I now return to you, that is, to the divine fountain of Vaucluse. How beautiful! Well might Petrarch make such frequent mention of it. But remember, I shall some day see all these wonders with my own eyes. I, who have such a veneration for antiquities, I shall certainly be transported by them and the magnificence of Grignon. The abbe will find employment enough there. After the Doric orders and the splendid titles of your house, nothing is wanting but the order you are going to establish there. But let me tell you, without something substantial at the bottom, all is bitterness and anxiety. I have great pity for those who ruin themselves. It is the only affliction in life that is felt alike by all, and which is increased instead of being diminished by time. I have frequent conversations on this subject with a certain friend of ours. If he has a mind to benefit by them, he has had opportunity enough to lay in a good stock. And of such a nature, he need not forget them. I am glad that you were to have two of your brothers-in-law with you this autumn. I think you have planned your journey well. We can travel a great way without being fatigued, provided we have something to amuse us by the way, and do not lose our courage. The return of fine weather has brought all my workmen back again, which is a great amusement to me. When I have company, I work at that fine altarpiece you saw me drawing when you were at Paris. When I'm alone, I read, I write, or I'm with the abbe in his closet upon business. I wish him with you sometimes, but it is for two or three days only. I consent to the commerce of wit which you propose. The other day, I made a maxim of hand, without once thinking of it, and I liked it so well that I fancied I had taken it out of Monsieur de la Rochefoucauld's. Pray tell me whether it is so or not, for in that case, my memory is more to be praised than my judgment. I said with all the ease in the world that ingratitude begets reproach as acknowledgment begets new favours. Pray, where did this come from? Have I read it? Did I dream it? Is it my own idea? Nothing can be truer than the thing itself, nor that I am totally ignorant how I came by it. I found it properly arranged in my brain and at the end of my tongue. As for that sentence, ver la cosa fare niente, you will not think it so dull when I tell you it is intended for your brother. 
Remember last winter's disaster? Adieu, my dearest child. Take care of yourself. Continue handsome. Dress well. Amuse yourself. And take proper exercise. I have just been writing to Vivonne, footnote, General of the Galleys, back to main text, about a captain of a troop of Bohemians, footnote, Gypsies, back to main text, whose confinement I have begged him to render as easy as possible without detriment to the king's service. You must know that there was among the troop of Bohemians that I was mentioning to you the other day a young girl who danced extremely well and put me very much in mind of your manner. I was pleased with her. She begged me to write to Provence in favour of her grandfather. Where is he? said I. He's at Marseille, said she, with as much composure and unconcern as if she had said, He's at Vincennes. He was a man of singular merit, it seems, in his way. Footnote and had been condemned to the galleys for having distinguished himself rather too much in his bohemian faculty, back to main text. In short, I promised to write about him. I immediately thought of Vivonne. I send you my letter. If you are not sufficiently upon terms with him to allow of my jesting with him, you may burn it. If it is an ill-written letter, you may burn it. But if you are friendly with his corpulency, and my letter will save you the trouble of writing one, seal it and send it to him. I could not refuse this request to the poor girl, and to the best dance minuet that I have seen since the days of Mademoiselle de Sévigné. She had just your air, was about your height, has good teeth and fine eyes. Here is a letter of so enormous a length that I can easily forgive your not reading it through. Monsieur de Grignon cannot conceive how I can possibly read such long letters. But in good earnest, can you read them in a day? Letter 15, The Rocks, Sunday, July the 5th, 1671. It is a great proof of your love, my dear child, that you can bear with all the nonsense I send you from hence. You defend Mademoiselle de Croquezon extremely well. In return, I assure you there is not a single word in your letters that is not dear to me. I am afraid to read them for fear of ending them. If it were not for the consolation that I can read them over as often as I please, I should make them last much longer. But then, on the other hand, my impatience makes me ready to devour them. What should I do if your writing was as illegible as Dacovie's? Would the greatness of my affection help me to decipher it? Really, I'm afraid not. But I've heard of such instances... In short, I greatly esteem Dacvie, and yet I cannot accustom myself to his handwriting. I never can read his letters. I hunt out word by word. I puzzle myself with guessing at them. I say one word for another, and at last 
When I can make neither head nor tail of it, away I fling the letter in a rage. But I tell you this is a secret, for I would not have him know that his letters give me all this trouble. He thinks, poor man, his hand is like print. But you, who know the contrary, tell me how you manage. My son set out yesterday, greatly concerned at parting with us. I endeavoured to inspire him with every good, just and noble sentiment that I was mistress of, and to confirm all the good qualities I had remarked in him. He received my advice with all imaginable sweetness and marks of approbation, but you know the weakness of human nature. I leave him therefore in the hands of Providence, reserving to myself the comfort of having nothing to reproach myself with in regard to him. He has a fund of wit and humour, and we shall necessarily miss him extremely. We are going to begin a moral treatise of Nicole. If I were at Paris, I would send it to you. I'm also sure you would admire it. We continue to read Tasso with pleasure. I'm almost afraid to tell you that I'm returned to Cleopatra. And by good fortune, the short memory I have makes it still pleasing to me. I have a bad taste, you will say. But, you know, I cannot affect a prudery which is not natural to me. And as I am not yet arrived at a time of life that forbids the reading of such works, I suffer myself to be amused with them under the pretense that my son brought me into it. He used to read us some chapters, too, out of Rabelais, which were enough to make us die with laughing. In return, he seemed to take a good deal of pleasure in talking with me. And if he is to be believed, he will remember what I have said to him. I know him well, and can often discern good sentiments through all the levity of his conversation. If he is dismissed this autumn, we shall have him again. I have mentioned Lonne to you. She was bedaubed the other day like a twelfth-day taper. We thought she resembled the second volume of A Sorry Romance, or The Romance of the Rose, exactly. Mademoiselle Duplessis is always at my elbow. When I read the kind things you say of her, I'm as red as fire. The other day, La Biglesse played Tartuffe to the life. Being at table, she happened to tell a fib about some trifle or other which I noticed and told her of it. She cast her eyes to the ground and with a very demure air said, Yes, indeed, madam, I am the greatest liar in the world. I am very much obliged to you for telling me of it. We all burst out laughing, for it was exactly the tone of Tartuffe. Yes, brother, I am a wretch, a vessel of iniquity. She attempts sometimes to be sententious, and gives herself airs of understanding which sit still worse upon her than her own natural way. 
there. I think you know everything about the rocks. End of section 5